The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast, starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies, because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, snubbed by the Oscars again. Again. It's Andy Greenwald. We're married today. We are. I think this is like a fun Monday. Uh, Andy, we're going to be talking about television a year after the pandemic started. You know, I obviously last week there was a lot of year anniversary of COVID uh, content from the NBA, from just the political spectrum, from how this country has been just waylaid by it. Uh, we didn't really talk about that and what it meant for TV. So we're going to do a little bit of that today. I also wanted to ask you a couple of Falcon and Winter Soldier questions. Uh-huh. And I think we're going to do some recommendations, maybe some Oscar and reactions. So like a little bit of a, you know, utility player pod. Chris is also bearing the lead. The there's Jose Okendo a- of podcasts. There's going to be, I was a big fan of him. A, a, uh, there's going to be a, a long missive from Daddington Island today. Yeah, there, I, there, I did ignore that. I'm sorry. I have. I, t- I put I put that in a bottle, literally a baby bottle, and I threw it into the ocean, and uh, it's going to wash up. I have a ton of beverages on my desk right now, and it's making me kind of nervous. Uh, Shouts to Juliet. Juliet Littman is the queen of having a lot of shit on her desk, but I have a Topo Chico, which uh, to me is like you know mm-hmm. the second best thing to come out of Monterey after zero zero zero, and then I have some water and some coffee, and I, I just feel like I'm a little overwhelmed right now. So take it away. What, would, what do you want to talk about? First? I love it. First of all, I want to watch to see what you reach for. You know, I think this is very very exciting. Yeah, like aren't there? What movie am I thinking of when characters like it's probably it's probably an Apatow movie, but I feel like there there are other examples of movies when a character is just like opens a box and has all the drugs, which oh, yeah. I don't think ever happens in real life, but it's just like, should you want to move in 19 directions at once, like Chris Ryan recording a Monday podcast, here are your options. You know what I mean? <laughs> like in right. my experience, people who like drugs really like a drug. They don't have all of them. And then they're like, let's see where the night takes yeah, you. Yeah, unless you're a Seth, Ro- right Seth Rogen character, it doesn't really happen very often. Next thing before we get into it, I, lest people think, obviously it's a little bit of a lull because Falcon Winter Soldier is coming and we have an interview that we're excited to share with people that's coming Thursday. We won't step on that yet. But my pe- some people might think it's a lull, like, you know, two professionals like us might be scrambling for material based on the fact that we talked about bagels for 15 minutes last week. Not true. I, what I want you guys to understand is, in fact, open space. Can I just say something can, really quickly? Yeah. Every bagel place in Los Angeles was absolutely slammed this weekend. Yes. People here love bagels and they also love trends. But... What I want people to understand is that when you are dealing with two podcasting professionals of a certain age like us, mm-hmm. to us, open space is as appealing as it is to Taylor Sheridan. You know what I mean? Like, we thrive in wide open spaces. And to the degree that yesterday, like a, like a rookie, I texted Chris and I was like, for tomorrow, do we need to like buzz through the Grammys to have something to talk about? And Chris, faster than he's ever texted me, with fewer uh, punctuation marks than he's ever used in a text to me, just wrote, no. And it was so <laughs> definitive. And I, I, I'm saying this to you, to, to you plainly. I, haven't, I didn't express this to you uh, in the moment. But this was, for me, like an eat, pray, love moment. 
Mm-hmm. I felt like I was Julia Roberts and I had gone to Bali and I just figured out what I've been missing in my life all of to this point. To like, not care it, about the Grammys? It my soul leapt from my body and danced in a way similar to a performer who may or may not have performed at the Grammys last night. I don't know. It was great. 43 years old, you freed me. And I'm so grateful. And I think the listeners of the watch will be grateful too. I think it's like one of those, it's, it goes back to the old, the old Kanye line. Oh, you graduated? No, I decided I was finished. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have anything to add to the Grammys discourse. No. I honestly, like I've been listening to a lot of Ice Age and Mogwai recently. I don't really have a, a Harry Styles take. You know, we have some great podcasts on The Ringer right now. The Ringer Music Show, Nora Princiati and Nathan Hubbard's uh, Taylor Swift podcast, Kaya is working on that you should definitely check out if you want to just go off the deep end with on Taylor Swift. There's Rob Harvilla's uh, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. So when I have something to add about music, I'm happy to jump in there and, and just play around the sandbox a little bit. But you, got, you guys don't need me talking about Harry Styles, do you? No, I don't think they do. I, I I can't think of, and maybe when the movie he's making with Olivia Wilde comes out, we'll finally break our silence. Yes. <laughs> but, we'll save all those takes for Ted Lasso too, I think. Um, speaking does, of movies though, should yeah. we talk about the Oscar nominations today? Yeah, we can do that first if you'd like to, sure. Also, obviously, Amanda and Sean have been covering the hell out of that. So, but I, I'm happy to, to weigh in here. You know, um, I think it was all in all like a pretty cool collection of movies that got celebrated. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I am an avowed, you and I both love Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm-hmm. So it's great to see that get some noms. It was great to see Mank get topped off with 10. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I can't wait to see Minari. I haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, but that also got a bunch of nominations. Any, any takeaways for you? I thought it was fascinating. And let me start with the headline. And this is the most impassioned you'll hear me be about this topic. Um, Delroy Lindo was the best performance I saw last year. I think full stop in The Five Bloods and he was not nominated. And that's a bummer because he is always a great actor and deserves the recognition. But I also think the even the way that I just tried to frame it without realizing it kind of speaks to how I feel about the Oscars as a whole, which is to say, I'm a, it's a performance in one movie. He's great and deserves recognition. And so when the stars align and the Academy lines, you know, lines up behind something, it's really nice. I, I don't feel like there's much to get too heated about, about in terms of, and sometimes it doesn't happen. I, mm-hmm. I What I mean to say is I, I don't see the point getting too heated about snubs or whatever, both because they recognize such a, a wide swath of uh, artistry, but also what a weird year, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's no one needs to hear me say again that I haven't seen most of the movies because that's always the case. In, probably weirdly i've seen more than usual because they've all been available for home viewing yeah i think this um, will actually flow right right into our conversation about tv a year after covid totally but i also think you know i was listening to to bill and our old friend wesley morris talk about this a little bit on on bill's podcast and you know wesley does see all the movies he is a current occasional recovering film critic and and his take was that like none of these movies are particularly exceptional it is not a year with great monuments to cinematic art there's a lot of really good stuff and sometimes the good stuff is in movies that are that 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 themselves are fine you know and what i've my takeaway from seeing that all represented and how it shook out was and and i'm really curious what you have to say about this was it just seems like a nice healthy corrective to a lot of years of overlooking a lot of people and a lot of stories and i'm okay with the oscars and maybe award shows in general being less about excellence, although this is a unique year because I just think there wasn't that much competition. Right. But really owning being about advocacy. Do you know? I mean, the, the headlines for the nominations this morning, I mean, the, the people expected Nomadland and Mank to be nominated and, and, and they were, and there were other performances like Daniel Kaluuya who, who were singled out and people expected that. But a lot of the headlines were very 2021 blog friendly in that they were like, for the first time, two men of Asian descent were nominated for Best Actor, Riz Ahmed and Steven Yeun from Minari. Mm-hmm. Um, Sound, of, Sound of Metal, another movie I'd like to see, is available to me, have not watched yet. Um, Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell being the, fir- it's the first time two women were nominated for Best Director in the same year. You could look at this as like, you know, uh, as, as wokeness or or whatever, but it's also like, this is great. That's great. These are Barriers that should have fallen. These are worthwhile performers. And 
I, I don't think there should be an asterisk next to their nominations because of the weirdness of the year. I think it reflects a, a healthy and changing electorate of the Academy. And it's cool. I, you know what I mean? I, I, I can't get that heated about it because yeah, it's worthwhile. There, there isn't. So like, if you're going to basically have this, not necessarily represent what people either actually see or actually right. love, then you might as well have it expose more people to important performances that yeah. they ordinarily may be missed. And stories. And, like, yeah, like for Minari, sure. And stories. Like that. And, and that, I think that's great. Um, you know, then even within that, there were still for his, for every Delroy Lindo where it was like, God damn it, like I wish he would have gotten that nod. Uh, you know, it's great to see Thomas Vinterberg get nominated for another round, which is like an incredible, uh, a really incredible movie that I saw a little a few months ago, and is also available. I mean, it's 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 sort of just an odd year. The actual. I, I'm sorry, the, to jump the, in, Chris, but I feel like from what I've read about another round, really want to see it. Heard it's an amazing Mads Mikkelsen performance. You are kind of living that life now, right? With the amount of of receptacles in front of you are you you just microdosing different drinks throughout the day yeah but like you know what the plot of that movie is right a bunch of dudes decide that their best selves are to be a little bit drunk all the to time. be functional alcoholics yeah right yeah that's that's a design for life in 2020 okay um Go on. so yeah I, I i completely agree with you you know I think that I, I tend to usually think more about the Oscars as a campaign than I do as like a night or as like anything that mm-hmm. decrees relevance onto things. So I'm always kind of fascinated to watch the narratives develop and the kind of the oppositional narratives develop against films. And that was the one thing that I was kind of curious about. Obviously, it's a very odd cycle this year. The, the nominations are coming very late. But I was, you know, in years past, I do think that there have been sort of there will be a front runner and then that front runner will get pulled back to the pack. And then there will usually become a, a, a field of two for best picture, for instance. And given what everybody has been through over the last 12 and months and change, I kind of wonder whether or not we're not going to get that this year yes. and whether or not that will be a pleasant, a pleasant kind of experience to just not have to be like, here's why Minari can't win or here's why Nomadland is corrupt I, I, or, or I don't whatever. think there are partisans, really. I mean, obviously, people want to win and the, more importantly, the studios and the distributors want to win um, with the same ferocity that they always want to win because of what it means for their bottom line, et cetera, et cetera, and the, the investment they've already put into their product. But, you know, usually, and I'm sure Sean and Amanda have been covering this more uh, thoughtfully than what I'm about to attempt to do, but like, there are years where there's a movie for good or ill becomes the figurehead for all that's wrong mm-hmm. with mainstream opinion or Hollywood. And Your green the book cha- or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and then there's the movie that's everything right, which, by the way, we should in those moments pause and be like, is that movie even there? Great, that's good enough. Sure. But, right, you pick sides. And, and you know, I am not the target viewer or voter here, but, I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah won Best Picture? Cool. Nomadland? Makes sense. Mank really enjoyed it. You know, it's it's a lot of like medium finds. Like they're, they all have things that are worthy and deserving. And it also might result in a much more interesting split ticket where all those movies I'm mentioning will probably get something, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's also, that's also very cool. But I, I did want to circle back because I don't think I articulated it really well, but it was something that we were trying to poke at when we were talking about the flaws in the Golden Globes, um, not as a TV show, but just sort of in terms of what they represent and what their project is and how... 16 you know, completely corrupt Europeans taking payoffs <laughs> to give stupid awards to people. <laughs> I mean, your words, not mine. But yes, that if they were going to be totally weird and out of touch and up their own ass or whatever, they should at least be doing it for good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yes, he's a bigot, but he's a bigot for the left. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, 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 like champion good things and make your project being a, be about you know, the viewership for I May Destroy You was relatively low, but but someone has to point it out and get it on the main stages, and we do that. And weirdly, it feels like that's what the Oscars are doing. And I think that after a decade in which the Oscars so publicly grappled with what is the purpose here, what is our mission here, how far away are we getting from championing and celebrating the movies that America sees mm-hmm. versus the movies we think they should see, you know, which is what led to all sorts of teeth gnashing and, you know, we're going to expand the field for best picture. We're going to create a most popular best film category and all these things that have sort of, you know, have some have happened and some thankfully have fallen away. But look, I mean, you don't need to give Avengers Endgame an Oscar. You know, it's it's had enough. It's fine. Moonlight needs an Oscar. 
So I, I, I feel like this was, maybe it's just because of this year was so quiet in comparison to like the big releases or even the big artsy releases from the major distributors and studios. It was a quiet year to show what it would look like if it if the the moonlight half won out. Mm-hmm. And I like the way it looks. I do think that a lot, of, I mean, you, you're, you're touching on an important point, which is the commercial aspect of the films. So the popularity of a movie has been kind of, sucked out of this this year's Oscars campaign. And what you get are the five to 10 consensus films. And even if some people have some problems with that, and there's been really interesting criticism written about Nomadland, written about Promising Young Woman, written about Judas and the Black Messiah. It's been, it's been a, a pretty thoughtful uh, last couple of months, I thought, in terms of like reading some of the stuff about that. I do think that it's it's interesting to consider these are the movies that were finished rather than the movies that were the best. <laughs> you know? Or the like, movies that were released because there are movies that people just said no thanks sitting out yes. of here. Yeah, right. And uh, so that that's that's an interesting conversation. You know, it's like what would have been in there had there been a juggernaut box office success? Obviously, like, I mean, I think I'm on Tenet Island in me and six other people who think that's an amazing movie. But I, you know ordinarily a Christopher Nolan movie released in the theaters is, is one that gets at least talked about for awards. What do you think the thinking is? Um, so one of the big Oscar contenders that wasn't, that was supposed to be, was Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner's uh, West, West Side Story, Story yeah. remake. That got pushed a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the box office potential for that is a question mark, I think. I mean, I, I do think that not if you ask your mothers. Well, exactly. Right. But are <laughs> yeah. they going to be comfortable going to the movies in a year I don't know, from now? A they got that first dose. There's a lot of go to the movies who aren't on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, if yes, they, uh, uh, the box uh, office uh, potential of that movie, had there been no COVID, I think would be pretty high. I think I think the potential. I wasn't saying that it's... I, I didn't mean to sound like a, I was casting doubt on it. It could be a smash. It could be amazing. I definitely would like to see it. My question about a movie like that is, had they put it on Apple or something... Mm-hmm. Uh, when all is said and done, it's it's a not knowable hypothetical. But I wonder if it, if the perception of its success was potentially higher if it if they had just gone ahead, released it to Netflix or Apple, which would have required an enormous payoff. I mean, it would we have had been this conversation about No Time to Die, didn't we? I mean, did we yes, chat about this? But I but I think specifically in the Oscar conversation, yeah, the reason no, I, I know I wanted to have mean. it because because one. A musical, like that was with Disney's gamble with uh, putting Hamilton straight onto the service last year. And I think that really worked for everybody. A musical is a family film. Like people are going to watch it all together. The viewership, repeat viewership could and, have been very high. And they, needed, high. That, they and, needed that W too, you know? And with Disney, I know. But and West Side Story would have been Oscar nominated. And uh-huh. maybe if it had been a sensation at home, it maybe would have been a front runner. And so I, you can never know those things, but it would have been interesting to see if people had had known how this was going to go, if they would have gamed the system differently. Because what you're alluding to in terms of success is already so different. A movie like Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, if it had gone on a traditional release schedule, may have been put into theaters in LA and New York in December, mm-hmm. needed this to get it into a bigger release. And still people would have been like, oh, it topped out at, you know, 50 million domestic 40, yeah, or whatever. Right, right. Now everyone's like, people see it. Everyone knows about it. It was on their screens. Did they watch it? Maybe. But- it does Did they finish feel, it? Who knows? You know? Who knows? But yeah. well, Casey Bloys knows, but you know, TBD. So what any of this means in terms of success has also uh, is also changed. And I this also feels like a potentially good segue to our uh year of COVID on TV conversation because the other piece of the Oscar thing that is looming, and everybody who's making the show is aware of it, is they is are walking into a buzzsaw. Whether anybody will watch it. Of ratings. Yeah. Yes. So six six million people watched Golden Globes, yeah, and I think eight point eight million people watched the Grammys, and and that is a fifty percent drop in viewership year to year for the yeah. I, I cannot speak to how many people watched the Players Championship this weekend, but uh, I was one of them. Uh, shout out to <laughs> Justin Thomas bringing home the trophy and <laughs> there on uh, TPC Sawgrass, but. You know, uh, that is definitely a thing where the lack of um, buzz around live events is, I think it has been kind of fascinating because one might think that since we are all nominally mm-hmm. at home mm-hmm. and are looking for a communal fire pit place unto which to warm our hands. Or to burn our hopes and dreams. Yeah, yeah like that these kinds of these kinds of mile marker events might be 
really significant that we might say like, hey, like, what the hell? Let's get together and watch the Globes. Let's all watch the Grammys. Let's watch people talk and celebrate and be rewarded for their be awarded for their and, their accomplishments and insert a small degree of uncertainty and chaos into our incredibly predictive and claustrophobic lives. So let me tell you this. I'm fucking tired, man. Like I do think that part of the problem with these award shows is when they're in the calendar and they are mm-hmm. almost it, the Globes and the Grammys and then the Oscars will be almost two or a year after we have been doing this. And if you remember correctly, when you and I were we were first going into the into quarantine and, and everything was swirling around yeah. us, the most excited I think we got in like two months after mm-hmm. it started was about D nice DJ sets on Instagram. And that was like this kind of and that bled, bled into the versus uh battles on Instagram, but you would see like we got so excited to see like people actually engaging in something that was a simulation of of our previous lives of going to see a DJ of dancing, mm-hmm. of getting excited and the comment section in and of itself became its own kind of spectator sport. And I think that that was really cool. And there was this idea of like, well, we're going to come up with all these new forms and COVID and we're going to like revolutionize how we appreciate like live events. And I think that when, um, soccer and basketball came back last year, I was really excited to have, um, a kind of, uh, structure to my life. Like I was like, Oh great. At night I can watch hoops and the days will seem a little shorter and a little less lonely and a little less like repetitive. And that's been that's been true and then it also I think it petered out a little bit. I think no fans, I think the feeling that the people that I was watching are kind of like grinding it out just like I am and that they're tired and they want to be with their families and they're tired of getting fucking tested all the time and they're tired of almost getting sick all the time or getting sick or thinking they might be sick and then not being able to play an all-star James Harden getting sick like six times. Yeah. Like all that. And I think it's been like a really traumatizing fucking slog of a year. So as we arrive with hopefully this daylight that we were seeing down the end of the tunnel, I think people are just kind of like, man, forget the Grammys, forget the Oscars, forget the Globes. I'm trying to get out of this house. Do you think that that's fair? Yeah. I think there are three things at play here. Um, that's one of them for sure. And, um, to take it a step, Further, I don't think people want to see a reminder that things aren't normal. You know, I I think that what I came to realize, and I think it may have been a mistake assuming otherwise for a while, which I did, is that um, the the, the feelings you're discussing are are real and people want to chase them still, like feelings of spontaneity or surprise, seeing people, you know, anyone enjoying themselves or being able to share some sort of communal feeling. That's, That's legit. But when you are chasing those feelings and everyone's wearing masks, or no one's there, or they're doing acceptance speeches on Zoom, or all of the jokes are about Q-tips being in people's noses or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think people want that. I think they want the thing. They don't want the simulacrum of the thing or the best possible version of the thing. I think the second piece of it is, um, certainly this is the case of the Golden Globes, and it's going to be the case of the Oscars, is people haven't seen this stuff. You know, I know we just said that more people maybe potentially have seen Judas and the Black Messiah, which might be true. What also might be true, and we kind of maybe should have alluded to it before, is the value of a of a chip like Judas and the Black Messiah to the larger Warner Media empire is no longer determined by how many of us saw it and at what price point in the movie theater. It's a it's a chip in its larger media strategy. And so when you when you say that larger larger media strategy, twenty years ago, say two thousand seven, it would not mm-hmm. be uncommon to see that was not like, twenty years ago, by the way, or else I will fight you. It was thirteen years ago. So. 14, 14 years ago. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, let's definitely just run some award shows. <laughs> um, you know, you would have something like No Country for Old Men, which mm-hmm. would come out on Paramount Vantage, you know, which was a sort of... I mean, that was the, the studio distributor. It was, yeah. Yeah, and it would be the kind of art house arm of Paramount. I think it was in Miramax Paramount Vantage co-pro or I, I can't remember or no it's fox searchlight i can't remember but, what, what but fox searchlight was the novel the novelty the uh, the art house brand of yeah. fox and vantage was the short-lived these art big house companies had program. arms that they for the most mm-hmm. part left alone to make awards worthy shit kind of like the watch within the larger ringer media universe that's right yeah. um do you think that judas and the black messiah functions that way for hbo max slash at&t 
No, well, I mean, first of all, I don't think, I think that the, one of the things that makes the movie really noteworthy and one of the reasons why I really like it, and I think its ceiling is very high, is because Shaka King, the filmmaker, he's not making an art house film. No. I mean, it is it is a big ticket. Um, it's so much more than this, but it has the DNA of a very, you know, a, a very gripping, traditional in the best way, thriller, right? Yeah, Political it's a, thriller. It's a spy movie. So I see what you're saying. I, I think, those the Fox Searchlight project and the Paramount Vantage project. I mean, Searchlight still exists and Vantage doesn't, but their role in the machine was noble but very ill-defined because they were basically like, everyone's making so much money, we're going to focus on making stuff that will deepen relationships and win awards. You know, which maybe you can't quantify, but if you know, maybe we make a good art house movie with this person, that person could then make a big budget movie for. Papa Bear Paramount one day, or right. it gives us a good relationship with an artist or an actor who wants to do one for him or her and then one for us. Mm-hmm. Specifically here, the company is building an ecosystem of content and, you know, creating something, uh, growing it in its garden and then eating it at its own kitchen table. You know what I mean? So the larger project of the last six months was basically time, uh, was Warner Media being like, we're going to show our long-term commitment to being a full-service streaming provider by just always having new movies. And maybe in a year or so, it'll shake out and they'll be like, Tom and Jerry got us this many subscribers and held them versus Judas and the Black Messiah or whatever. In the short term, that doesn't even matter. It's just showing the investors this is how committed we are, which has a different value. The To, to segue again, or <laughs> this, this is just us chatting, so we don't need an official segue. But the third point I wanted to make about why I think live events are... Um, failing, and this might be the most worrisome one for people who make these things or who are basing their ad sales for the year on the airing of them, specifically thinking of NBC shelling out 20 million, 200 million or whatever for the Golden Globes for a good chunk of time. I don't think this toothpaste goes back in the tube. Mm-hmm. I think that for many years during the streaming or the, the dawn of the streaming era, the digital revolution or whatever the last 10 years have been, uh, and this is something that our old colleagues slash bosses at ESPN were very smart about at the beginning of the decade, which was, yes, there the, the pie of viewership is being sliced into ever thinner and thinner slices, like like garlic in the prison scene in Goodfellas. The one thing that will get you the whole clove again or close to it is a live award show or a sporting event, because that's still the one thing that people will actually turn on their TVs for. And that's been eroding and that's been eroding, but there were still a lot of massive decisions based on those, on that premise, including NBC's investment in the Golden Globes. I think that might be over. Mm-hmm. Now, 9 million viewers at one time is still a lot in today's ecosystem, but there's value in that. But the, the understanding that everyone has now, that we can just watch whatever we want when we want to watch it, and maybe we'll catch up on that award show with YouTube clips later or listen to some dinks on a podcast who didn't even watch a show talk about it the next day. That's really baked in now. And I think that one of the trends that is most interesting um, about pandemic viewership is just everybody just got free, man. Everybody's just watching whatever the hell they want to watch whenever they want to. And even like trend pieces that had a little burn last summer, like, hey, everyone's watching The Sopranos now. What's up with that? No, they're right, not. Right. A lot of people are watching The Sopranos right now while we're recording. A lot of people aren't. Some people are going to start it tomorrow. Some people have never seen it. That's cool. It's around forever. You know what I mean? And I think that that kind of is the new normal, and that is the wild, wild west, because how the hell do you program for something like that? So this gets back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast. If you're talking about stuff like award shows, I do think that there is a problem where there is an eroding middle the people who, like when I was growing up and I would watch my mom get excited for award shows, it was because there was a combination of getting to have more intimacy with celebrities or stars or actors or performers or directors or whoever. You have that already with social media. You have that mm-hmm. with the constant 24-7 entertainment news cycle. So mm-hmm. you don't really need these quick snapshots of like Steven Spielberg's talking to this person. Oh my gosh. You know, like Jack Nicholson sitting in the front row. It's like Jack Nicholson. First of all, I mean, whatever that person is for now, you probably have more access to them now than you ever did to a movie star before. By the way, the last time I heard you use that voice that you just used was when we went to, and I'm sure Disney regrets this decision, but when we went to the Hollywood premiere of the rise of Skywalker last year, (laughs) Uh like, 
Harrison Ford is like whispering in J.J. Abrams' ear and they were all there. He was talking was, to fucking Spielberg and it was just oh, like, right, oh my God, those guys made Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're and they're 30, just 30 yards from us. Yeah. And they were just chatting. And then it quickly became like both of us with all the celebrities in the world in attendance, just laser focused on Adam Driver, wondering if he was going to snap. Because <laughs> he had just been on Terry Gross being like, the thought of being confronted with my own work makes me physically experience pain to such a degree that I must leave my skin. And then, little did we know, it was that movie. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. poor guy. All right, anyway, please continue. So there's, to some extent, I think that there's, the purpose that these shows serve is a little bit off now because of the amount of access we have to people or the sort of mm-hmm. simulation of access that we have to people. Then there is the thing that you were talking about where it's like, well, nobody's really seen these movies, so shouldn't it just be advocacy for the good ones, the good movies? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. fine, but since nobody has seen these movies, they don't really know what they're watching. You know, like a lot of... To, so to, to most people, I don't think that Frances McDormand is a draw. You know what I mean? For, for as much as she is an American you. treasure, I don't think <laughs> yeah. that she is like a reason to turn on your television. So there's all of that. But you touched... You, you said something that I think is basically, to me, the theme of, of what, our, what we're talking about here. And it's been the theme of the March 2020 to March 2021 run for me. And that is, this has been 12 months of burrowing. This has been 12 months of people essentially creating their own reality. And rather than feeling like there were certain things you needed to participate in to have a functional relationship with people that you might see at work or, or have a conversation at a dinner that you might go to with another couple or something like that, where it's like, why don't we watch this show that everybody seems to be talking about so that we can say to somebody on a Friday night, like, hey, did you guys see this? It just doesn't seem like that's happening anymore. And I think it's actually reflected in your, me and you, our conversations, because we're mm-hmm. supposed to be on top of it. And I think part of the reason why I sometimes have a little bit of anxiety on like, say, a Sunday night when we're like, well, what are we going to talk about tomorrow? Is I actually don't know. It's not that we're not watching anything. We're watching maybe as much, if not more, than we ever have before. There's just nothing central, you know? And when I look at, I'm looking right now at the, um, in the corner of my eye here, uh, a list of all the TV premieres coming from the next couple of months. And there are things you that know, I... You, you uh, share that doc at some point? It's just, it's just on <laughs> metacritic.com. It's my oh, homepage. Okay. I thought you were uh, reporting it. No, no, no. But it's, here's the thing. Metacritic mi- is my title now, by the way. That's you're not missing anything. In theory. It's like, right. there's nothing you're going to see in this list where you're like, oh, fuck. Well, of course. Falcon and Winter Soldiers is coming soon. We're going to talk a little bit about that. There's some stuff that I'm very excited for, like The Serpent on Netflix and Mare of Easttown on HBO. We're in the middle of like basically losing ourselves to the Bureau, which we'll talk about more. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of little things. And when you look at Netflix and you look at the Netflix top 10, you're like, what fucking planet is this? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, there are shows that are probably bigger than any show that we have talked about in the last 12 months on Netflix right now that we have never even mentioned, like Ginny and Georgia or whatever. I've talked about Behind Her Eyes, but like these shows that are juggernauts on Netflix and then just have nothing to do with the mm-hmm. things that are big on HBO Max and nothing to do with the things that are on Hulu and nothing to do with the things that are on Amazon. People are making their own bespoke subscription service lineups. They may not have one or the other. And so now more than ever, it's impossible to know what matters to people. And I think that in this year where everybody's trying to take care of themselves, they're just like, if I want to watch 17 Scandinavian crime shows, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. We're also, I agree. And we're also, you alluded to what you alluded to it. And then you also didn't know what year it was. And I feel like that's relevant. Like we've all become unstuck in time. And so among the many things that no longer mean anything or matter anymore, like the theatrical release window or whatever, any vestige of a traditional entertainment calendar seems absurd and archaic. And I think it was the first thing you said about award shows or award show fatigue. Like, we're having the Oscars now? Oh, okay. Why? Totally arbitrary. Were things in theaters before December 31st? No, nothing was in theaters. Was there the traditional push for certain kinds of movie to be released at a certain time? No, not really. Some stuff's just popping out. Was there even any need for these things to be in theaters? No. Similarly, with TV... You know, we even, and this might speak more to our age than the reality we've been living in for the decade we've been doing this podcast or near decade, but we still kind of, to the very last possible second, tried to orient ourselves around the traditional fall to spring calendar. Mm-hmm. Even when great shows started dropping in the summer, even when streaming systems, uh, streaming services kind of kind of hacked the matrix and realized that if you put stuff out on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving Day, millions of people are passively waiting to watch it. The only reason you didn't is because, you know, 
Joe paycheck reporter like like we used to be was just sitting there wait, drumming his or her fingers on the desktop the Monday before being like, got to run something. Yeah. You know, we got to cover it. It's yeah. very different than we're going to just give it to you. So all of those things have fallen away. And because of that, we're, everybody, I think, is a little bit topsy-turvy about what's what's happening when. Oh, this premiered on HBO in June, but now it's on the front page of HBO Max, and I didn't know it was ever on HBO, so I'll just watch it now. Or sticking within that media ecosystem, you know, I was we were excited the other week to talk about how shows like Banshee and 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 uh, The Nick finally made it onto streaming after being exiled from Cinemax, and the smallest possible sample size. But if I ever scroll through my menchies, people more people are writing me being like, "Holy fuck, Banshee is insane," or "The Nick's the best show I've ever seen." Than they are saying, "Thank you for doing forty five minutes on It's a Sin." I'm mm-hmm. sure they're saying that too, but I just feel like a lot of mom, there's a lot of momentum on shows that premiered seven years ago than anything else. So all, all of that is is completely topsy turvy. Well, don't you think that's in, an interesting uh, inversion of what we thought that this era was going to be about? I think you and I were like, this is going to be impossible to keep up with. Five hundred new scripted shows, mm-hmm. five coming a week. How are we ever going to keep on top of it? What are we going to? How are we going to know what's important? How are we going to know whether or not we should talk about an entire season of Ozark or just one episode of? you know, a Game of Thrones spinoff mm-hmm. and then all this other stuff. And it felt like it was going to be this tidal wave of the new. And then obviously, and I want to ask you about what you feel like is the state of TV production mm-hmm. right now, but mm-hmm. it's turned into a tidal wave of the library. <laughs> and it's yes. it's a tidal wave of the archive and what, you know, the the pandemic only extended the interest, I think, in shows like Friends or The Office mm-hmm. or Modern Family or uh, any of those like huge huge backlog of seasons sitcoms that you could mm-hmm. dive into and just have on in the background and it's mm-hmm. the same thing goes for like SVU and a lot of the other shows that people seem to anecdotally use as like mm-hmm. background music but then you've also got i think people just kind of like exploring their own algorithms and being like okay so what like literally if this show is recommended to me because i finished something else i will check that out rather than watch something that i've seen five people talking about that i maybe don't have any interest in um, but I will do it just to sort of be able to talk to Diana in the break room on Monday. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are also, I was thinking about this before we get into the production stuff about like what has popped, like what has, this is, it's crass, forgive me for the phrasing, but like what has won in terms of won the cultural moment or what, you know, bubbled to the top of the completely virtual or at least on zoom water cooler conversation. Um, and I think it's important to note that even among the shows that we covered or talked about over the last few months, there are certain things that are evergreens and haven't changed. So two examples, both in the HBO world that I would put under this category are I May Destroy You and The Undoing, which couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. But both, I think, did exactly what they would have done in any cultural moment, which is I May Destroy You is so undeniably incredible and uh, fresh in introducing this, you know, not not introducing Michaela Cole, but really putting her into the forefront of a lot of people's minds who had never heard of her before. I think that would have happened in any year. And similarly, like The Undoing, that's bread and butter for HBO. You know what I mean? Like like big stars, salacious, soap operatic stuff, glossy Donald Sutherland's eyebrows. It would have done what it did no matter what. Started you know? the and secondary that, industry of theories about how it was going to end. And tertiary industry, my favorite, of just phenomenal Hugh Grant interviews because, dude, <laughs> him on Marin is really a good time. But uh, so not so I'm not really specifically thinking of those. I pulled out three shows that I think are indicative of kind of that I think had different outcomes this year than they may have otherwise and are, are worth talking about. One is kind of obvious and it was the one that everyone talked about a year ago or close to a year ago, which is The Last Dance. People know I watched it a year late, so it's fresher in my mind. But I think that would have been popular, obviously, the most popular athlete of a 20 year span globally. Uh, you know, shit talking for 10 hours with a glass of Añejo tequila. Like that's, that's pretty (laughs) must see TV, no matter how you distribute it. But I do think it caught the same vibe as the Instagram DJ parties you're talking about in that it, people really wanted it. It It was was collective. It was collective and it was fun. The other two though, that I wanted to, to, to highlight one is Queen's Gambit, which we don't need to get back into why we liked it because we loved it. Um, but you might disagree with me on this, and I wonder if you have an, an alternative suggestion. But I was trying to think of shows that I felt uh, really 
grabbed the mic in the absence of the shows we were expecting to be watching. And specifically, like, a lot of the end of, you know, Q4, Q3, The Watch in 2020 would have been on Succession Season 3 had they been able to to make it, or potentially even Atlanta Season 3, or award show movies, just kind of the, the, the stuff that usually fills that space. And in its absence... Um, or Stranger Things season four. Right. And in, in their absence, I really feel like this unlikely miniseries about chess just grabbed all four quadrants. I mean, when we were covering it, we were talking about how it was a show we liked and our wives liked and our parents liked and younger people we knew liked. And it was just, it hit it, you know? And so I think it would have, it's not like its quality would have been different in another year. But I think that people found it and held it close more intensely because it felt like a special surprise and there we were missing a lot of programs then. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. Oh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet, toes, come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use, from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by the Disney Bundle. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new exciting movies and series, all for one low price. On Disney Plus, join the ranks of Captain Marvel, Captain Monica Rambeau, and Ms. Marvel as they team up to save the universe in Marvel Studios' The Marvels and embark on an adventure into the futuristic world of Iwaju. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. And school is back in session for the beloved teachers of Abbott Elementary. The Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. They're better together. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. How much do you think that has to do with just the the almost entirely other ecosystem that is Netflix? Like, how much do you chalk that up to people being home, mm-hmm. turning on Netflix, and just sort of like giving things a chance that they ordinarily wouldn't? I would also... I, I don't think you can understate how much, in retrospect, Queen's Gambit was a sports movie, you know, and that the yeah. quote-unquote athletic elements of it, at least the competitive elements of it, mm-hmm. which... Not surprisingly, it took place at a time when there was not a lot of sports. So mm. people were, you know, watching this person kind of go through it. And since it was, you know, fictional, you're like not exactly sure how it's going to go. You're not exactly mm-hmm. sure what the... It's not like The Last Dance where most people know how The Last Dance ends. I, I do think that that had a lot to do with it. I think that the miniseries aspect of it had a lot to do with it. I, I think it's fascinating to consider whether or not it would have been as successful if people had been allowed to go to like baseball and basketball games and concerts and movie theaters and everything else. The other one that I was going to put up for your consideration um, is, this won't come as a surprise to our listeners, is something that we don't watch. At least I don't think we do. But I, I was really struck by, people who pay attention to this have always known this. I don't want to pretend like we've discovered something here. But the incredible value of Grey's Anatomy an ABC drama in its 17th season really knocked me out this year when I was sort of just considering it. And 
One of the when reasons you say why, value, do you mean it's value to ABC or it's like fisc like the the amount of money that it prints? What are you talking yes, about? Yes, and it's value to television in general and to its you know devoted audience and the size of that audience. You know, uh, obviously, a, a connected story to that is just the outrageous value of Shonda Rhimes, who signed you know a, a bank breaking deal with Netflix and then immediately delivered what they are saying is their biggest hit ever in Bridgerton. Yes. Yeah. That doesn't happen. You know what yeah. I mean? Like when the angel signed Albert Pujols to like $200 million deal, he didn't revert back to being 25. No, again. if anything, that, that contract, like his his value started depreciating the second he signed it. It was like Instantly. getting a car lease. Yeah, but like with Shonda Rhimes, I think it's actually a, con- you have to think about whether or not she's even more valuable than she was when she signed the deal, you know? Yeah, so kudos to her uh, and Netflix for making that deal. But, but Grey's Anatomy, the reason I bring it up is... A, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, it is as we've lost a lot of like bread and butter, basic, this is what TV does, shows, um, both to the zeitgeist and people chasing something new, but also as, you know, audiences diminish and an investment in some of those platforms has diminished as well. Grey's Anatomy is a show uniquely prepared to deal with the pandemic because they're in a hospital, so they can just be like, now we're in a pandemic and everyone's wearing masks, you know? Uh and it's not forced. Or we're shooting it. scenes with just like one character on a beach in Malibu. <laughs> then you also have the ability to be like, you know what? People really want something specific right now. And if it's, if you're a show like Better Call Saul, for example, this is, a, this is maybe stretching, but I think it's relevant. You make this fifth season, you're gearing up to make the sixth season and you're delayed by the pandemic. You cannot use that time to be like, feels like people really want more escapism now. So we're just going to do a fun, breezy season where Jimmy's just conning people again and maybe goes to the beach. And then right. we'll get back to the story. You right. can't do that. You got to tell the story you've told everyone you're going to do. And I'm not saying people would want the other story. I'm saying the ability to pivot is interesting. And it's one of the unique things to TV, or at least the way TV used to be when it wasn't all predetermined and plotted out. And so Grey's Anatomy can be like, people need uh, comfort food. They need like big ice cream sundays of tv and there and what we can do uniquely is have meredith go into a coma and walk on the beach in malibu near her house and just hang out with patrick dempsey again and literally everyone else who people used to love on the show and that works within this universe and then beyond that just it's so dependable its ratings are enormous it's abc's highest rated drama still Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and i think that it's the type of show people turn to because it's always been there so it gives you that kind of long time feeling of not just escape, but of comfort and of familiarity. And you mentioned the financial stuff. Yeah. I mean, the show prints money still all around the world. And it has a, it has a spinoff. It had two, right? It had private practice and, uh, and now it has station 19, right? Yes. And Christopher Vernoff, who worked, you know, was basically running the show with Shonda Rhimes for many years, went away, came back, has been running it the last few years and running the spinoff and is making another show for ABC, basically said in a very candid interview with The Hollywood Reporter, it's like, if Ellen... Pompeo wants to do more, we're making more of the show. Yeah, and they've actually, on purpose or not, I have to imagine, just like everything in Hollywood, it's somewhat on purpose, that they're doing a very savvy job of teasing whether or not this may or may not be the last season. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Noff, I think, said that she was writing the season finale as a series finale, just in case. Mm-hmm. Which does nothing but draw interest to the show. I mean, like, I kind of feel like they'll come back and do a victory lap season, uh, even if it's a shortened one. But uh, it just feels like what you need to do to be uh, a night of television show for people to actually care about t- tuning in the night of is to make f- people feel like I can't afford to miss this. Now yeah. you can do your best and just avoid spoilers and not, not see anything that happened, but more often than not, something will happen on Grey's Anatomy that will then start showing up on websites fairly soon after that. So you have to kind of go into a little bit of a black box if you want to miss out on it. The other thing that, I, that I'll say is that you do have to, it's not just that you have to be good and give audiences exactly what they want and love for many years. I mean, the, the amount of skill and talent and hard work that goes into hit shows is really remarkable, but you also have to have a little bit of luck in that a truly successful, like super long running show has to have a plug and play framework that can overcome you know, cast upheavals and changing times and changing audience tastes like a hospital Mm -hmm. or like a paper company office, for example. But what, as we found, it can't just be the building. There are shows that can just be the premise of the building. The Law and Order Empire, I mean, all shouts to Mariska Hargitay, who is still still delivering, 
I do think Law and Order SVU, I know people who watch it like you, Chris, might disagree with me, but if she ever decided to hang up her spurs, like I bet the show could continue. Because that is a box, like the Chicago series, my pal Brian Garrity's in them sometimes. I don't know anyone else who's in them. I'm sure people love them. I'm sure they're great actors. But when the show is called like Chicago Fire, all you need is Chicago and a fire. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you could, it's a plug and play show. But for these like truly like love, 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 like I live or die with this stuff, you need a star who's willing to be like, this is my life's work, right? And Ellen Pompeo, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, It would be 18 years of her life and she seems to enjoy it and get a lot out of it and is an executive producer. The office yeah. could have run forever, but not with James Spader. Like Carell would have had to stick around. And the other reason why we didn't have the giant content gap that we were maybe anticipating was that people figured it out. And, you know, there are, all of this is under the umbrella of people who work in Hollywood entertainment are not at the front lines, are not essential workers. So we get, we understand that and I want to contextualize it. But I think there, in terms of within the field, there's something kind of heroic about the work that you know, line producers and and production executives and everybody up and down the board and everybody, people who went to work on these things, reinvented the industry on the fly and finished stuff out or started stuff up under these conditions. But the reason, the thing that I wanted to touch on though, before we finished the conversation was just, again, these are not people working in emergency rooms or nursing homes <laughs> or at, you know, or my friends at, at BioNTech in Germany, which I really thought was the name of the company in Breaking Bad. So, <laughs> what was it? Was it Madrigal? Yeah, good. Good for yeah. you. But I yeah. feel like Madrigal was a rebrand from BioNTech. You know? Sure. Yeah. But either way, big fan of the work. But when I talk to people, and I don't think you'll, hopefully you won't see this in the shows that, that when they air, hopefully we, you know, the great season two won't begin with Peter turning to Catherine and being like, I grow weary of court. Let us, you and I talk for 10 hours, you know, and then it's just a two-hander for the whole season. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be the case, but I do want to just sort of reflect some of the, uh, uh, share some of the conversations that I've had with people who have been doing this and just say that it's, sounds like it's been a nightmare, just full stop. Yeah. A nightmare. Like, you know, again, in the non-coal mining scheme of things, it's the best work in the world, but it's really hard, you know, to be in production or to be working these hours, not even at the top of the, you know, people whose names are at the front of the show, just everyone. Take away some of the perks why you do it, which is the community and the collective spirit and the friendships and the relationships and all the things that bubble up around the craft services or just, you know, opportunities and while well, you're waiting for lighting, lights to get hung or whatever, that's just all gone now. And so when I talk to people, who have shows in production, on the one hand, they're like, yeah, there's going to be a season four of Name Your Show here. Has it cost four times as much? And has all the joy been leached out of every day of my life? Right. Kind of, yes. <laughs> kind of, yes. Because, again, the, the all the things that were good have kind of been sidelined for a lot of people. And in their place are endless new restrictions and procedures and you know, when you hear about a show going back into production last fall, fill in whatever show you want, rest assured they're still filming now mm -hmm. because they have, maybe it hasn't been reported, although some of these have, it's been shut down. Someone tested positive and then quarantine protocols kick in and the entire uh, costumes department is knocked out or whatever. How long did it take them to make the Batman? Like, did, did, wasn't that like an 18 month shoot all in all when, once you finally got through the the various shutdowns that they had over there. What's crazy with the Batman, it's a great example, is the kid who they have playing young Bruce Wayne in the scene where his parents get shot <laughs> at the end of shooting was old enough to take on the cowl and become Batman. That's right. Pattinson just d bestowed it on him. In, in, in the Batman too. And so you're just going to hear these stories that like, yeah, you know, an, an actor you love got to do a great guest spot on a show that got delayed and went back into production. But that actor, if you're wondering why that actor is just tweeting about a Toronto hotel room, it's because that actor had to abandon his family for two weeks to sit in a hotel room to yeah. shoot for a day. It's rough, man. And so we're getting the content and hopefully it's going to be good. But I, in the scheme of things, is this something that we've lost? Are we going to put up a banner, tribute banner, and play sad songs? No, but like... Right. Did, was a there a version of the flight attendant that could have been different had they been able to shoot that straight rather than coming back and I think that was one of the first shows back in production if not the mm -hmm. first show back in production I thought it was kind of interesting to see some of the um, 
initial interviews coming out of Falcon and the Winter Soldier with Malcolm Spellman and, and some of the folks behind that show talking about the stop down and what it meant mm. for the show for them. I think they kind of refined it a little bit. I don't know how much of that was in post and whether they then came back and shot some more of it and when they found out that they would be going after WandaVision and when they found out that neither WandaVision nor Falcon and the Winter Soldier would be coming after Black Widow that would have been mm-hmm. in theaters by that point and how many multi-billion dollar plans were just thrown into the fire pit. But when the show was announced, it was Falcon and the Summer Soldier. Yeah, and then <laughs> Sebastian Stan's hair went gray. I know. No, I, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm really curious to see that, you know, I, I gotta say that if you, if you, in a vacuum, I don't think I would have noticed, you know, there's not been right. that many shows where I'm like, what, like, clearly this person is acting in an empty room and they're pretending like they're having a conversation. There's nothing like that. And of course, I like in the aforementioned Metacritic list that I was talking about, there is no shortage of stuff. Is there a lot more documentaries? Yes. Is there a lot more movies moving into the big new release of the week conversation? For sure. But I haven't noticed any kind of real slowdown. It feels just different than the world which John Landgraf warned us about, which was going to be, you know, 10 new scripted shows a week that you were trying to wrap our minds around. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I should be clear that like for, you know, every actor any actor who's working, it's not a horror story. I'm sorry for all the caveats. I just always feel self-conscious about that. Actors are always excited and grateful to work. But, you know, I check in with- I'm sure there's a guy on Chicago Fire who was like, in fact, I am a hero. Yeah. (laughs) I am a first responder. Speaking speaking of stars of Chicago shows, who I mentioned him already in the show, like my pal Brian Garrity is on Big Sky, which is Mm -hmm. a hit for ABC. And, you know, he's just lives in Vancouver now. And he's very positive. He seems to be enjoying the experience and the character and the show and his colleagues a lot. Can't come home. Can't leave until May, you know, and there are worse places to be. But like, that's just his life now. And I think that that's just one of these sort of small changes. I am really grateful. All of the work and change schedules and loss of joy or whatever is mostly, in terms of what we've seen, the result has been an indistinguishable product, Mm -hmm. which I think is the highest compliment you can give. Personally, you, you're a longtime Superstore fan, so you can speak to this, but mm-hmm. I feel like Mr. Mayor, a show that I really like and mention whenever I can, uh, which is whenever I want, because as previously alluded to, no one's checking on us, especially right. at our, as we cross the hour mark, right, Kaya? That was filmed entirely post-COVID, and they even make a joke about it in they the first episode. To it, that they, they, it's set in a post-COVID world. Yeah, and then, then we move on, and the show is really enjoyable and good. Superstore, I think, was leaning into it, right? And everyone was wearing masks. Yeah, everybody wears, like, it. it's it's weird. On Superstore, like, there will be, like, half the scenes people are wearing masks. If they're out on the floor of the store, they wear masks. And then if they're in their break room, they're not. I, I think that the thing that we feared, and we keep joking about, because it is pretty funny to imagine, a world where the shows in question have to wildly change all of their plans and reduce focus and reduce, in, you know, and shoot everything as oneers and then stitch them together to make it seem like people are in the same room. They're not doing that. Mm-hmm. But what's happening because of that, though, uh, as a result of not doing that, is studios, for example, have to shell out six times as much money to quarantine an entire room full of background people to fill out the frame. Mm-hmm. So there are ways around it. They're being healthy and you know safe and whatever, but they're spending all that money there. Okay, so what we might not realize and we haven't really noticed yet is that if the stu- if that's coming out of the show's budget, that great set piece that you were looking forward to later in the season, if they're really good at their jobs and people are really good at their jobs, we, the audience, won't notice. Mm-hmm. But I promise you in the next year when we talk to showrunners and we have them on again, they'll be like, I wish you could have seen what we were going to do yeah. before we had to when pay Stranger $20 Things million. Dollars it's to- just all those kids being like, look over there. And they never show it. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be definitely a pretty. That's when we'll know. Um, That's when we'll know. Let's punt the because re- yeah we've we were had some technical I was having some I had some Zoom difficulties today so maybe we should uh, I don't want to um, spook it and like have it shut down by starting another segment and so Thursday's show we have a special interview and maybe we can throw a little bit on top there uh, I'll also be on this Thursday big picture where we're doing a four hour podcast about Jesus. Justice League Jesus uh, um, you could you could not pay me but yeah I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Falcon and Winter Soldier. Because I watched the first episode and there are reviews oh. uh, streaming in. Humble and uh, can, can I just say, I was shocked 
the people that they gave the first episode to seem to tweet very positive things about that. You what are the don't odds? Say that really? was shocking to me. <laughs> Incredible. Um, Wall, it was great to see you. Great to see you too. I also just want to salute your professionalism in the face of technical difficulties. I want to just let people know what the technical difficulties were. I was trying to segue into the conversation about Daddington Island where I had some kids. Oh, we didn't get stuff. to do it. You know what? I wanted to. Uh, you, and, no, no. Honestly, we're going to delay. My, my three o'clock can wait. You tell me what Daddington Island is go, what's going on I think that there. Chris, Chris thought I was going to ask him how his Miyazaki viewing was going a month plus after saying he was going to watch The Wind Rises. And then what happened, I asked the question and then the screen started shaking as Chris pretended to pour <laughs> Topo Chico on his laptop. And then he froze, but he was blinking and then said he had to reboot and we ran out of time. Can I tell so, you a, a real respect. thing that my wife Phoebe said the other day? Yeah. Andy is on an incredible hot streak right now <laughs> because not only <laughs> she and I are, are six hours into the bureau, which we're, we're just absolutely head over heels in love with and it's going to be probably the only thing we talk about for the rest of the year on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I finished season one. Catch up. Andy also turned me on to a Mezcal subscription service. <laughs> Which I don't know if my wife and I are rationing quite appropriately, but mm. like your recommendations are golden here. So maybe the Mitsuyaki thing needs to happen. I think it will go well, especially if Phoebe's involved. I should just directly communicate with her going forward instead of through this sort of like delicate semaphore of hoping she'll pop into the frame behind you. While she definitely it. has. She has all the legislative power in this house. She's okay, the, so she's mansion. <laughs> she's the I, swing vote. I do have some Daddington takes, but we're going to save them for Thursday or Monday, I'm sure. If this there's is, one thing people who have kids know. This is how we're the Grey's Anatomy of podcasting is we just keep people wondering what's going to happen next. Also, people with kids, if there's one thing that they have a lot of, it's time and patience. So they can wait. It's not a big deal. <laughs> See you what later. A, what, a, what a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Great Sorry, guys. <laughs>